0: I heard a story on a ship off the coast of Labrador. It's not my story, as many of you know from listening to past episodes of The Space In Between and Past The Jam, I'm not a big fan of music services like Spotify and Apple Music, as a primary way to discover and learn about music and musicians. To me, these services take away that important element of education, self-discovery, research, and adventure of coming across something you've never heard before and going, wow, I really love that. I'm going to go out and explore this avenue of music or these musicians. I'm going to hunt down their records. When I was younger and really got into music, particularly in the late 70s and early 80s, the way I would discover new music was by going to the record store, buying a record, and reading the liner notes. And until recently... I never realized how important those liner notes were in terms of my education process around new music. They provided the historical context for what I was listening to, the history of the band, the band members, the particular album I might be listening to at the time. And I would use these liner notes as a jumping-off point to explore new music. I would look at the liner notes, and I would look at personnel playing on the record, and I would go, I really love that guitar work. I wonder who's playing that. And it might be a guy like Freddie Robinson. So the next time I'd go to the record store, I would hunt for albums by Freddie Robinson. And this process was iterative. It would continue from there. It was my growth, my learning process about music. The problem I have with Spotify and Apple Music and various others is they use an algorithm which replaces the human component of discovery of music. If you like James Taylor and you start to listen to James Taylor on Spotify, then the next thing you know, Spotify is recommending artists who sound similar to James Taylor. It'd be Cat Stevens or Ben Howard or somebody like that. But you're no longer involved in the process. Now you've got an algorithm that's doing it for you. But it tends to restrict your listening to particular genres and doesn't have any way to encourage you to go beyond that, to take a risk, to try something new. And while you can still go out and search for all those old songs you wish you still had in your record collection, you're still being limited in terms of future discoveries. You don't have that launch pad that liner notes provided. These days, when I'm over at people's homes and I'm listening to their music on playlists or Spotify or Apple Music or even on their iPod, I find there's a general vanilla quality to it all. Everything seems to blend together. And I don't get that musical backstory that I'm always looking for, that liner notes provided. So I find myself always saying to people, well, who played that guitar solo? That was brilliant. Or that sax solo was so mellow. I just loved it. Who's that? And they look at me with blank stares because they don't know. Well, I can certainly, if I remember, go home, uh, look up the song, look up the album on Google and try to find the information about the record, about who played on it, when it was made, and so on and so forth. I'm not getting the story. The people that wrote liner notes were serious fans. They were collectors. And that came across in the liner notes they wrote. Recently, I was cleaning out my garage and found a bunch of old records dating back to the 1960s, and I started to read the liner notes, and realized how much I missed them. So for this episode of The Space In Between, I thought I would share some with you. It's the story of the late, great Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry performing live at the Bunkhouse in Vancouver, British Columbia. The Bunkhouse was a really interesting venue. It was located on Davies Street in downtown Vancouver, and it was one of the few clubs where black American artists could come and play in front of white audiences. But what was most unique about the Bunkhouse was that they recorded the performances live and then produced the records. So this story is taken directly from the liner notes on that record from the show at the Bunkhouse in 1965 there has rarely been a music duo that works as effectively together as this one. Singer-guitarist Brownie McGee's sociable, sophisticated, and relaxed presentation is complemented by singer-harmonica player Sonny Terry's earthy and uninhibited polyphonic backgrounds and solo excursions. The strong accumulative effect makes for a musical exhibition of polish and craftsmanship that is frequently lacking in the work of other blues-based artists. They have a knack for inspiring each other. Veteran practitioners in the multifaceted field of American music. Their 26-year-long partnership has produced many programs of spirituals, blues, gospel songs, and even children's play tunes. Their show business experience is wide of scope. They have performed in nightclubs, coffee houses, and on concert platforms all over the United States, Canada, Great Britain, and Europe. For the U.S. State Department, McGee and Terry toured India in 1959 and 1960 as our representatives on the cultural exchange program. The Broadway Theater has seen these two blues artists as a team in Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Langston Hughes' Simply Heavenly. The mouth-harp wizard Sonny Terry was featured in Finian's Rainbow with the original Broadway cast in 1946 and 47. In fact, before Terry ever met McGee, he won considerable acclaim on the stage of Carnegie Hall during John Hammond's famed Spirituals to Swing concert in 1938. Like the art of jazz, both McGee and Terry are based in the traditions of the country blues. From their beginnings as itinerant blues players on the streets of southern cities, they have grown and developed into an urbane musical combination without losing their authenticity and dedication to their heritage. To borrow a line from famed radio commentator Paul Harvey, and now the rest of the story. Walter Brownie McGee was born in Knoxville, Tennessee on November thirtieth, 1915, and in the mountain country where there were many Negroes. Terry was raised further east in the Piedmont cotton tobacco country of North Carolina. Early in life, he came under the influence of the famed guitarist, Blind Boy Fuller. The McGees were a musical family. The father, George, alternated between farming and entertaining. Brownie's uncle, John Evans, was a country banjo fiddler. And his younger brother, the late Granville Sticks McGee, was also a guitar player. Shortly after Brownie's birth, the elder McGee moved to a smaller town, Kingsport, Tennessee. He would frequently take Brownie along with him on trips to various picnics, country hoedowns, and other functions, and soon began to teach his son the fundamentals of entertaining. Uncle John made the youth a small instrument out of a marshmallow can for a head and a neck made out of seasoned poplar with a side peg. It was, in effect, a five-string country banjo. After Brownie, at age four, suffered a case of infantile paralysis, which left him with a limp, his father concentrated on teaching him the dance songs and the made-up blues he remembered from the old-time field haulers. By the time he was eight years old, the youth could play piano and guitar. He had even mastered an old-fashioned foot-tradle organ. His singing and speaking voice was good enough to warrant his being chosen for speaking assignments at school, and he also became a member of the Shouting Baptist Quartet, which performed at his church. After four and a half years of high school, he took to wandering around the Smoky Mountain Resorts looking for entertainment work. He hitchhiked with his guitar around his neck and a kazoo under his arm. During this early period, he traveled for a while with the Medicine Carnival, several haphazard medicine shows, and a minstrel troupe. He eventually returned home and took up the development of his guitar technique quite seriously, learning to use finger picks to increase his volume and save the wear and tear on his fingers. He also formed bands around Knoxville made up of two guitars, a harmonica, a washboard, and a tub bass. It was hard to get jobs as the Depression had arrived and the bad times had set in. As many of the bluesmen did, Brownie again took to the road and hitchhiked to another section where he hoped there would be more work. In Winston-Salem, North Carolina, he met a harmonica player named Jordan Webb. And when the police told the pair they could not play on the streets, they both left town together. A few miles further east, they met another entertainer, O. Red George Washington, who played a washboard. Their new acquaintance took them to Durham, North Carolina, to Blind Boy Fuller's home, where they met Sonny Terry as well as Fuller. Terry was his protege and lived with Blind Boy and his wife. Terry and Brownie took to each other right away. But Fuller did not like having a competitive guitar player on the scene. Terry, whose real name is Saunders Terrell, was born on a farm in Greensboro, Georgia, October 24, 1911. His father, Reuben, was a harmonica player and taught Sonny the instrument. His first lessons were to learn the traditional tunes, Lost John and the Fox Chase, and to emulate the sound of a train in the distance. He added to his knowledge whenever DeFord Bailey, an intramouth harp artist, visited Durham. When eleven years of age, Sonny suffered an accident that impaired his eyesight. He was beating a stick against a chair, and a sharp piece of wood flew off into his eye. Five years later, he lost his other eye completely when a boy threw a piece of iron at him. The first meeting with Fuller took place in 1934, and they worked so well together they became inseparable. When McGee first arrived in Durham during 1940, Fuller and Sonny had made several trips to New York and Chicago to make rhythm and blues records. After the death of blind boy Fuller, the two artists moved to New York City to live in late 1941. During the war years, they eked out a living playing at folk parties, many of them in conjunction with the late, great, huddy, lead-belly, lead McGee also set up a home school of the blues on 125th Street in Harlem. He taught blues singing and guitar playing. And the infinite variety available in the blues form ultimately enabled the team to develop their current artistry that has won them such a high degree of acclaim. At first, McGee was a country blues performer in the tradition of the late Big Bill Brunsie, but as the years went by, he smoothed out his voice, deleting the harshness of Big Bill's delivery, and now sings with a less tense feeling. He gets a tenderness and whimsical humor that contrasts beautifully with Terry's more primitive work. The latter's spirited blues feeling is enhanced by McGee's melodic and urbane comments the result has been an intimate insight into the stories the two were telling in their songs. Well, you can hear it for yourself. Because here is a recent performance recorded while they entertained at the bunkhouse in Vancouver. This episode is dedicated to George Hoffer. The writer of these liner notes, George Hoffer passed away in 1967, only two years after they were written. And unfortunately, we no longer have Sonny and Terry and Brownie McGee with us. Sonny Terry passed away in 1984 and Brownie McGee in 1990. But their memory lives on in these records and through these stories created by all those great writers of liner notes. And hopefully through this episode of The Space In Between. For what it's worth. This concludes this week's episode of The Space In Between. I'm your host, Blake Belnick, and we'll be back next week with the episode we had promised for you this week. Unfortunately, one of our team members had a family emergency, but we'll be back again next week for an episode of what it's worth called Between the Sheets.